journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Shalom, shalom, and Shavua Tov. May everybody have a wonderful week ahead, a, as we say, a good gebenched week um, with good news to share on all accounts. Thank you for joining me. I'm Adel Kozulski. This is 101.9 Hi FM, and we are exploring the mystical text. So hop onto your camel, put your Bible underneath. Well, actually, don't put it underneath your shoulder. Open it up. We're studying the book of Exodus, chapter 12. We're going to start on verse 37. We are leaving Egypt. Very, very exciting. Um, And there's going to be a lot of discussion around this leaving of Egypt because Egypt is the prototype exile and redemption story. And it says, just like we saw wonders and miracles in the time of Egypt, we too are going to see wonders and miracles in the time of uh, the, the coming redemption, which we are hoping are going to, is, is going to happen really, really soon. So excited for you to join me. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you on 34519. That is our SMS line or on 061-895-1019 is our telegram number. So without further ado, let's get stuck into the Bible. Right. We were at the point that the Egyptians were basically kicking out the Jews and saying, please leave. We've had enough. Egypt is completely destroyed. Um, we don't want anything to do with you guys anymore. Off you go. So let's see where they go off to. Verse 37, chapter 12. Okay. Israel, the, the, the Israelites traveled from Ramses to a place called Sukkot. This was round about 600,000 adult males on foot besides the children. So let's just understand where they're coming from and where they're going to. Now, Sukkot is on the Egyptian border. So right after midnight, it's the 15th of Nisan, Moshe went to Paro's officials and said the Israelites are leaving the country. And so they left from the old city of Egypt, which was called Joseph's Granaries, okay, until Ramses, which was um, six or seven hours. And then everybody congregated in a place called Ramses. Ramses encompasses a very large area about we are told 24 miles in diameter. I haven't converted that into metric. And um, those that got those that were um, those that were very close obviously arri- arrived around dawn. Those that were further away didn't leave until sunrise. And then everybody, the whole mass of people, started moving from Ramses to. Um, to, to, to a place called Sukkot. And this is the place now where we start reading in the Midrash about the clouds of glory. The clouds of glory were clouds that protected the Jews throughout the entire traveling of the desert. 
it was, I guess, the prototype to Waze. It did a much better job than Waze or Google Maps because it not only showed us the way, but it protected, it protected, it protected us. Okay, so um, we had clouds on all four sides. So north, south, east, and west. We had a cloud on the bottom um, that protected us from the harshness of the desert sand, I guess the heat of the desert sand. And then we had a cloud on top. And that cloud then, uh, you know, protected us from any um, thing that would fall from heaven or rain or I guess any bad inclement weather. And then we had one cloud that was in front of us that was our GPS, was our ways. And it was this cloud that would indicate to us where we should go. Now, the process of what would happen is that if this encapsulation of clouds that surrounded the Jewish people, if they um, were stationary, then the clouds would be stationary. When it was time to move, what would happen would be that the cloud that was above us, that hovered over the tabernacle, would rise. And that would then be a sign for the, for the, for the, for, for the Jewish people to move forward. They would pack up their stuff and then they would start traveling and then they would follow that guiding light um, in the front. At night, it would change into a fire because obviously you can't see cloud at night. Now, the, these clouds of glory so obviously gave us direction. It obviously protected us. It also actually had the ability, the Midrash tells us, to lift the people or to um, uh, carry the Israelites along. And really, this journey from Ramses to Sukkot would normally take about a three-day journey, they actually made it in one hour. They had what we call, in Torah terms, kvitzot haderech. Okay, we had a shortening of the way. It's not the first time we have this concept in the in the in in the Bible. We had it when Eliezer, the the faithful servant of Abraham, went and uh, looked for a wife for Yitzchak, and he was traveling down to the family, and it was supposed to take him 10 days, and he had Kfitzit Aderech, and he arrived then within that day. Well, today we can understand Kfitzit Aderech in modern terms. If we had to try a, say, walk to the land of Israel, it would take us months, right? Now now we have Kfitzit Aderech, we catch a plane, <laughs> and we're there in a couple of hours. So they had that um, in, in that time, and you'll see later in chapter 19, God says and reminds the Israelites, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. So maybe they didn't have, uh, you know, the Elal the carrier or any other carrier, but they were definitely carried by the airline called Clouds of Glory. And that is also, by the way, why... Uh, the Jews had to be ready to go. It says, with your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand, that's how they had to eat the pastel offering because they did, they left, they left straight away. Now, there is going to be an entire discussion around um, how many people actually left. Because if we look at the verse, it says, Kashesh me'ot alep. Kashesh means around 600,000 um 
people, and then says gvarim, which means that we're only talking about the adult males, levadatav, besides all the children, and of course they have not mentioned the woman, and of course they haven't mentioned yet another group of people that joined us. So just after the break, we are going to go and investigate, in fact, who, how many people actually left Egypt. When you're going to go find out, um, you're going to understand why Moses had such an incredibly, incredibly difficult journey to have. But as, as fun, if anybody wants to try, have a guess. 34519 is our SMS number, 061-895-1019 is our number. How many people, how many people actually left Egypt? Let me know. Let's see if you can guess. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. This is 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Adel Kozulski and we are transversing the desert <laughs> in the Bible. Right, I just had a very interesting question sent over by a listener that says, please enlighten, Moshe called to Joseph to come with them to Egypt. Can we talk to the dead? Can they hear us? Can they respond? And can they help us? Well, that's a really, really good question and thank you for answering. So um, we are not allowed to call on the dead. Um, it is part of the occult, it is part of sorcery, and in fact it does a lot to the the soul if we disturb them from the from 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 their resting place. So I need to put it categorically out there that it is not something that we practice as Orthodox Jews. Um, however, having said that can we talk to the dead? We can, because um, on a much broader level, we believe that the world exists on many, many planes. And whilst we you know, look around with our eyes and we are in a mode of what you see is what you get, in fact, if we had the ability to put on spiritual glasses, we would be able to see multifold worlds. We would see worlds upon worlds like not one on top of the other, kind of like when people say, where is heaven? They'll point upwards and then you think, okay, I'm going to have to leave this stratosphere. I'm going to have to go past the moon and maybe Jupiter and Mars and Venus and Saturn, maybe beyond uh, the sun. That's where the world to come is, where Kabbalistically we are told that that is not true, that the world to come, the world of souls and all sorts of all other worlds are actually um, layered one on top of the other um, uh, and we can't, uh, we just can't see them, but it's there. It's multi-layered. So it is a Jewish custom, for example, to go to the graveside of a, a past relative or a, a holy person and pray there. We are not, we are not praying to the, we are not, it's not a form of idol worship. But we do believe that a certain part of the soul, the nephesh of the soul, there's five levels to the soul, that when a person departs, we've got five levels, nephesh, ruach, neshama, chaya, yechida, that the four other levels go up to heaven, but a part of the soul called the nephesh remains here. So if you want to have a conversation, you're most welcome to go to the graveside of your beloved one or to the graveside of a holy person. Um, and you can you can pray there. Will they be hearing you? They definitely will be hearing you. 
But if we take the view that the, the, the spiritual worlds are like layers on top of our physical world, then the, 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 the people who've passed on can hear us and can see us and are watching everything that we're doing. And therefore in Judaism, what we see is that we will do a lot of things to benefit the people in the, the other worlds. We will give charity on their behalf. We will do good deeds on their behalf. We will mention their names. When it comes to the anniversary of their deaths, which we call the yard site, we will learn on their behalf. And all of that benefits them. And there is a reciprocal nature, even though we cannot see the, the, the flow back in, in, into us. So can we talk to the dead broadly? Yes. Can they hear us? Yes, they can. Can they respond and help us? Yes, they can. But we cannot indulge in any type of, of seancing or black magic or any occult practices in order to get them to hear because that we are taught disturbs them. If they need to respond and help us, most times it will be in a natural natural way. Something will happen or, or you know, you'll kind of like get the message between between the lines. And so that is really what happened with Joseph um, and, 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 and the coffin. Um, Moses prayed and Joseph's coffin, um, you know, came up in a, mirac in a miraculous way. That was an open miracle. Generally, though, um, we do feel, we do feel the presence of those that have departed. Some people are more sensitive than others. And again, I'm emphasizing the most important thing is that we cannot, we cannot go purposely and wake them or call them um, and have a full-on discussion with them from the other worlds because that is very, very detrimental to, to, to them. So I hope that that was answered and, and, and thank you for, for that, that, that question. Right. We were going back to, well, how many people actually left Egypt? Interestingly, we've just read the verse that there were 600,000 adult males. That means that those were males from the age of 20 um, to 60, and these were men who were able to travel on foot. But we need to know that, A, that there were children, and B, there were women. And the Midrash comes and tells us that there was a ratio, women and children to men, of five to one. So if on average we had 600,000 men, we would have to go and say that the people leaving in Egypt were approximately three million. Um, we have a hint to how many children there were, okay? Um, and that is, we are told with King Solomon, there's a very, very interesting verse in Song of Songs, which is a very, very esoteric uh, part of the Jewish Bible. Um, there's a quote there in chapter 6, verse 8, that says, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines. And um, one of the commentators there go and say the 60 queens are equivalent to the 60 myriad, the 600,000 males over 20, while the 80 concubines were the eight, 80 myriads, which are the 800,000 children below the age of 20. So, and also just understand that the figure of 600,000 isn't a precise now, if we're saying that there were 600,000 men between 20 and 60, 
Men and women and children came to 3 million. We are still missing out some people. That is that this this uh, figure does not include two groups of people. One is the Levites, the, the tribe of Levi, because Moses didn't count them here. And the reason why they were not counted was that they were not freed at this time. Why? Because they were never enslaved. They remained as the Jewish spiritual leaders and they never came, went to that initial volunteering, oh, we'll help Egypt, you know, build up. And that's how everybody got enslaved. They stayed, they stayed away from it all. And so their entire tribe is not calculated in that. Um, there is also now another group of people, which I'm going to read the verse and then go back again and start making other projections. So if you look at verse 38, it says, There was a great mixture of nationalities, that went up with them. They also had sheep and cattle and a huge number of livestock. So we have 600,000 men. We have four times the amount of women and children. We have the tribe of Levi, and then we have an Arab Rav. Some rabbis go and say, you know, how are you going to actually work out um, all the children? Because we know that one of the miracles that happened during the enslavement was that a Jewish mother, when she fell pregnant with a child, actually popped with six. So it was very common that you would have family with 60 children. She would have 10 pregnancies and 60 children. Can you just imagine? <laughs> so some rabbis start working all of these calculations out and they come to the original number of 9,968,760. You must remember that four-fifths of them actually died um, in, in, in the in the plague of darkness. So suffice it to say, I'm not going to get stuck on numbers, but you've got three, four, five million people walking out of Egypt. Can you imagine trying to manage them all? Can you imagine all the viber? They didn't have time to go to, to kosher world and to Moishis and get their provisions. Um, <laughs> they just had a bit of, of, of unleavened bread on their backs. They left in an independent rush. And now Moses has this incredible but um, massive job of leading these people through the desert. And boy, did we give him up here. Let's go back to understand who this mixed multitude was, this, this, this uh, great mixture of nationalities, which we use as the word Erev Rav. Okay, so um, there, are, there are conflicting ideas of exactly who they were. Some say that these were Egyptians and other Gentiles who saw what, what happened to Israel, what God did for the Israelites in Egypt, and they converted to the Hebrew faith. And there is one uh, commentator that said there were 2.4 million such converts that left Egypt. Interestingly, um, these guys converted, but their conversion was not a true conversion in that they didn't convert because they wanted to embrace Judaism. They converted because they understood that if they wanted to survive, the only way to survive was to get onto the winning team. And so 
what we will see is that um, a lot of them caused a lot of trouble in the desert, that they were, in fact, most of the time, the instigators to the problems because their heart wasn't really in it. They just figured, listen, you know, this is, this is like kind of like a big war. I have to make a decision. Do I side with the Israelites or do I side with the Egyptians? It was very, very clear to them that the Egyptians had, had, had lost. And so they jumped onto, on, onto the wagon. But um, they, they landed up um, instigating and, and rebel-rousing and, and causing a lot of, a lot of trouble in the, in, the, in the desert. Now, Pharaoh didn't want all these converts to leave, so now he's got a destroyed country. Like, the terrain is destroyed, the economy is destroyed, there are so many dead, we said it was going to take three days for them to go and bury. He didn't exactly want now 2.4 million converts to leave, okay? Um, but the Egyptians said to Pharaoh, let us, let, let us go, and that's why it says in verse in chapter 12, we just read it, uh, verse 33, a couple of shows ago, that they said the Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. Uh, one commentator says, this is talking about the converts, that the converts themselves felt like, let's just get out, okay, and let's go with you because uh, we need to actually normalize our lives. We need to, to, uh, to sort things out. Now, just I said to you that they caused a lot of trouble in the desert. Um, the majority of this area of Rav actually died um, when, when the spies came back. Remember there were 12 spies, only two of them. Kalev and Yoshua came with good reports. The 10 came with frightening reports. There was an entire insurrection against um, Moshe and God said, well, you're all of you that have insurrected and do not believe that I can take you into the land of Israel, you're going to die in the desert. And it says it was then um, that these, these, this area of Rav, they, they bore the brunt of, of, of their, uh, their bad behavior. Then and they died after the spies returned from the promised land at uh, Tavera and again at Kibrot Hataba. Um, a lot of a lot of this Arab Rev, Arab Rab died. There is one hint, though. Interestingly, it says uh, we we translated as a mixed multitude that it was, so to speak, all the riffraff. Anybody that was interested in, in in joining the Israelites came. But if you actually look at the Hebrew language, and this is why it is so important to learn the Bible in Hebrew, you will see there's a grammatical um, deviation. The gam erev rab ala itam that the, the the mixed multitude also went up with them. But the word ala, okay, from aliyah to go up. Um, if you're going to talk about a lot of people, then the conjugation of the word la alot to 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 go up is alu. So it should read gam erev rab alu itam that the mixed multitude went up with them, meaning all of them went 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 with the Jews. But it says Allah, which is singular masculine. And so the rabbis go and tell us that the reason why it's in singular is to teach us it wasn't a riffraff of anybody and you know that was hanging around. It was only one 
one um, one type of people, and that is the nation. There was only one nationality, and that was the nationality of the Egyptians. Okay, um, and to understand more the reason why they caused so much trouble in the desert was that amongst this area of Rav were the greatest occultists, occultists of Egypt. They were the ones that initially laughed at Moshe's magic tricks, but as time went by, they became convinced of his greatness when they saw him do wonders that they couldn't duplicate. And so what they decided to do was to convert to the Hebrew religion. Okay? Um, and amongst them, by the way, were two of them. Their names were Yonoth and Yombros. I don't think they're really nice names to name your, your, your kids, but Yonoth and Yombros. And the reason why they're called the Erev Rav it's because even though Erev, Erev is normally translated as evening, um, Erev in the occult arts is a term that denotes two periods of the day. We're told that the first period in occult language, this is in a uh, magician, uh, in, in the, I guess in the, in the, in the black magic uh, paradigm, the first is from noon, which is called Erev Rav, because it comes at the time of the great Mincha. The great Mincha is the time of Mincha that begins at noon, and it's called great because it encompasses a full half of the day. We then have a second part of the day, which is called small Mincha, Mincha Katan, which begins late in the afternoon and encompasses only two and a half hours. Now, these master occultists knew how to practice sorcery during the day during whatever time they desired. And all of them, all the, uh, the Egyptians looked up to them and they would listen to whatever these guys would say. So the followers of these occultists were called the Erev Rav because they followed, they were people who practiced their rites during Mincha Gadol, during what the occultists called Erev, that, that large part of the evening. So that's who they were. Um, they weren't the, the, the most savory bunch um, simply because they had not embraced God and his Torah for what it was, but rather um, they, 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 had, they, had, they had other agendas. And so that other agenda did raise its head every so often, making it pretty ugly and pretty difficult for, for, for the Jews in the desert. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. This is Adel Kozlowski. You're joining me with Mystical Text. We are trying to get out of Egypt with a whole lot of people. Let's have a look at chapter 12, verse 39. They baked the dough that they had brought out of Egypt into matzah cakes. Kilochametz had not risen. Because they were driven out of Egypt. They, they couldn't delay in Egypt. They had not prepared provisions for the way. It wasn't these, uh, these uh, end of year holidays, you know, where the Jewish Bible go and plan it from January all the way to December down to the last, last, uh, last section. So, again, I did speak about it before. I'm just going to say it again. This verse seems to contradict another verse where God says anybody who eats anything leavened, their soul shall be cut off from the community of Israel. 
you know, that leaven had, had, had been removed from the houses and that they were in fact commanded to eat matzah with the carbon pesa. So what is this matzah now? Okay. Um, and the answer is, is that there were two batches of matzah. One was matzah that we had to eat with the carbon pesa and we had to clean out all the leaven. It was forbidden for us to have leaven. And the first Pesach really was only a holiday of one day. And um, it only changed into a holiday of seven days um, from the second year. And we include, obviously, all seven days until we come to the splitting of the sea. So the second matzah could have been leavened, but it, didn't, it wasn't leavened because we had to leave in a, a rush. We couldn't remain an additional minute. So they, um, that's, that's, we ate this bread. The reason why it was not leavened wasn't because God told us not to eat leaven. It was leavened because we had to hurry up. We couldn't tarry and we couldn't, we couldn't get out of, of, of Egypt. Interestingly, though, the resulting matzah cakes that were made from this unleavened bread was all the food the Israelites ate for the next 31 days. Talk about being boring. Okay, they ate it from the time of coming out of Egypt all the way to the 16th of Iyar, which was when the modus operandi changed and manna started falling from heaven. But we're told that a miracle did happen during this entire time of 31 days. Uh, the matzahs remained perfectly fresh, perfectly wholesome. And it also gave gives us an inkling and an idea into um, the faith of the Jewish people. Because although they had not, they, they, I mean, they hadn't prepared provisions to leave Egypt, they left immediately and they did not worry that they would not be finding food in the desert. Right. Chapter, verse 40, chapter 12, brings another problem for us. That the dwelling or the lifestyle that the Israelites had in Egypt lasted 430 years. For anybody who's been following the Bible should say, how does that happen? How do we get to 430 years? Because until now, we were grappling with exactly two figures. One was 400 years, because that is what God said to um, Moshe, I'm sorry, to Abraham, that your people will be enslaved for 400 years. And if you recall, for those that have been listening to my show, when we were at that point in time at the Brit Ben Abtarim, we said that the 400 years began at the birth of Yitzchak, and we counted 400 years from there. Um, the physical time that we spent in Egypt was 210 years um, till we got out, and the physically intense time of the 210 years was, in fact, 86 years. So until now, the, these are the numbers we've been bantering, that the, the redemption started on a spiritual way with the birth of Yitzhak because that's when Abraham categorically had descendants that could go down to Egypt. God in his infinite mercy didn't keep us there physically for 400 years, but the exile is counted from the time of the descendants of Abraham. And there were 210 years and the 86 years, the last 86 years were the worst. Now suddenly the Bible has thrown a curveball 
saying that we were there for 430 years. Just for me to go back quickly, in case you did miss it, I'm just going to give you the calculation of how we got to 400 years. Yitzhak was 60 years old when Yaakov was born. Yaakov was 130 years old when he came to Egypt. That makes a total of 190 years. Add the 210 years where we were there, you come to the 400 years. That's just, just by and by. So how did we get to 430 years? So our rabbis go and tell us that there, there was a tradition, okay, that as long as any of Jacob's sons survived, the enslavement wouldn't begin. Now, the last of Yaakov's sons to die was Levi. He lived 137 years. And it can be calculated that Levi was born four years before Joseph. This is all mathematical. Joseph was 30 years old when he became viceroy of Egypt. And this was followed by seven abundant years and the two years of famine before Jacob came to Egypt. Therefore, when Jacob came to Egypt, Joseph was 39, Levi was 43. Since Levi lived 137 years, he was in Egypt for 94 years, and the exile only began after his death, and the Israelites were in Egypt for 210 years. That led the period of subjugation to a maximum of 116 years, and therefore, altogether, we were on 430 years. Okay, so that's one explanation. Um, another explanation is as follows is that we know that only one-fifth of the Israelites um, who had been in Egypt left Egypt. Only one-fifth. Why? Because the other four-fifths died in the days of darkness. If 86 years was the full term of the exile, of the Israelites, who left Egypt, then the total number of man years of slavery would also have to have included all those that died in the days of darkness. So take 86, which is one portion, and another four portions of 86, which is the four-fifths that died, you'll come to 430 years. One other explanation does go and say that even though we generally count the 400 from the birth of Isaac, 30 years before that, the um, angels of the of of Egypt started preparing for the spiritual uh, descent into exile, and that's how we came to four hundred and thirty years. I, for me, um, you know, the, I think these all these numbers do have mystical significance. The bottom line is we were there for way too long. Um, where they called it 430 or 400 or 210 or even 86. Not one day was, was, was you know, enough for people to be subjugated um, with the brutality and horror that they actually put in. Um, we're going to go for a bit of an ad break, and I'm going to try in three minutes to tell you a story about a false redemption. So hang in there. This is 101.9 High FM. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Right, let's see how quickly I can tell you about a false redemption in exactly three minutes. It's the year 2418. That is 1,343 years before the Common Era. 
It's 180 years after Jacob comes to Egypt. Um, Moses is sitting in Ethiopia at the time. He hasn't even come to tell people about the redemption. Um, so he couldn't control any of this. What is happening? There was a chappie by the name of Yagnon um, who came from the tribe of Ephraim. So all the Jews were in Egypt. Moses wasn't there yet. He pretended to be a prophet and he told his tribe that the time had come to leave Egypt. He had calculated that from Brita Ben Habtarim, the, 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 the um, covenant that Abraham had come to, that from there to, to now, there was four, 400 years already passed. And so he started convincing his fellow tribesmen that they needed to leave Egypt. And they thought, no, he's right. So they armed themselves and they left Egypt. They made two fundamental mistakes. First, they calculated the 400 from the Brit Ben Aptarin, when in fact it was from uh, the birth of Yitzchak. And the second was that even if they were right, they should have waited for God to give them the authority to leave because God had promised that after the exile they would leave with great wealth and that would involve great miracles. But these Ephraimites, if we can call them that way, did not wait to see what God would do. They made the decision, they left Egypt, they headed towards Canaan. They took with them all their wealth, which included much silver and gold. Provisions for the journey, however, were not taken even for a single day because they assumed that when they passed through the land of the Philistines along the way from Egypt to Canaan, they would be able to buy supplies. And if the Philistines were unwilling to sell them, then they would take them by force. They were very, very powerful, um, physically powerful um, tribe. So one of their stops was in the Philistine city of Gat. They came to the shepherds and the cohorts and they asked them to purchase a number of head, head of sheep and cattle. And when the shepherds replied to them, listen, we are merely employees and we, we can't sell even a single animal, they got mad at them and they took them by force. The shepherds then raised a big cry. They sent messages to the city of Gat. They asked for help. And hearing that the Ephraimites were at preparing to attack the shepherds, the people of Gat armed themselves and they attacked and there was much bloodshed on both sides. But that night, in addition, the people of Gat also sent word to all the other cities of the, of the Philistines asking for reinforcements. They told them how the Ephraimites had come out of Egypt, how they had attacked them without any reason, and how they were trying to take their livestock by force. Okay? So in a short while, what happened, okay, um, 40,000 of the best Philistine warriors were assembled, and by that time, the Ephraimites now had gone with three days without food or water. They were hungry, they were exhausted, and even though that they were powerful warriors, they barely had strength to fight back, and by the time the battle was over, but, um, every Ephraimite was killed, with the exception of 10 survivors who were spared by God's grace to go warn others not to do what they did, okay? And so even though those 10 were like finished, they managed to go back to Egypt. They told the grandfather Ephraim, who was still alive, what absolutely happened. Um, and that was a lesson that one must not listen to false messiahs and people who come and they allegedly say that they are a prophet of God. We have strictures, we have we have. We have um, legal um, uh, boundaries written by many, many of our great, great um, halakhic authorities as how to identify Mashiach, how to know when it is the time of Mashiach, 
as the Jews did in the time of Moshe, he was um, ordained their their Messiah. And they went back to Serach, if you remember, to double check that that he is the real McCoy. We do have those. It's not in the in, in the scope of this today to discuss them, but they are very, very clear as to who's the Mashiach, and we should not take into our own hands and think that we can hurry up redemptions. So I'm going to leave that with you, and um, we uh, we will be back next week to continue the discussion, and thank you, everybody, for participating today. This is 101.9 High FM.